Bible with you, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The text is also printed in the bulletin. I welcome you if you're uh, joining us perhaps for the first time this morning. We're working through Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, one of his earliest epistles. We're now in chapter 4, which reads as follows. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Suppose for a moment you are a convert to Christianity living in Thessalonica and you become a member of the church. You were raised in the local synagogue. You were taught the ways of God and then you happened to be there when Paul came to town. He came to your synagogue and he began to open up your scriptures and show you that all the promises referring to Messiah actually had their fulfillment in a man named Jesus of Nazareth 33, 30 years earlier in Jerusalem. And your heart goes, yes, this is the one we've been waiting for. You give your life to Jesus in faith. So do some of your Gentile friends who happen to be at the revival Paul is leading. And subsequently, you're having coffee together and you're talking about the Christian life. How are you going to do life? What's your new life in Jesus looking like? What do you think is one of the primary areas of struggle for your Gentile friend? Probably making the wholesale shift from the way he has been doing sexuality to a radical change of abstinence except for sex within a heterosexual marriage. That would really be a struggle for him. And of course, if this were you befriending someone today who's coming from an unchurched background, it would be no different. Your friend might find biblical sexual ethics oppressive, restrictive, and archaic. It seems that in Paul's day, your Gentile friend is being tempted to go back to his former manner of doing sexual expression. And we can anticipate his objections to the biblical ethic. And they would go something like this. Look, everyone's doing it. 
All the men in our culture have prostitutes, they visit harlots, they enjoy concubines and mistresses. Everyone's doing it. We all know about the sacred prostitution at the temples. I'll look weird if I change my life. My friends may disown me. These are natural desires. What's wrong with acting on them? No one's getting hurt. I can still be a good husband. I can still be a good father. Doesn't God just want me happy? Besides, I know I'm going to heaven. What difference does it make what I do in this body that's going to die? And at the end of the day, only I can decide for myself what I do with my body. Anticipating this way of thinking, Paul writes these eight verses you have in front of you. And what he does is he gives you a rationale for biblical sexual ethics, as well as I believe makes them desirable. And we're going to look at three things. Three things that make biblical sexual ethics reasonable and desirable. Number one. They're based in God. Look at how he begins in verse 1. He says, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. Paul is echoing the teaching and the words of Jesus. That is, you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul is gently, that's the idea behind the words ask and urge, and with encouragement, right, just as you're doing, he is reminding them of what he had already taught them about biblical sexual ethics that he received from Jesus, right? We're teaching you through the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the second and greater lawgiver after Moses. Jesus reveals his Father's will For his people, he did so by embodying it and teaching it unambiguously. So, beloved, who wants most that you know how to walk and please God? Who wants that most? God does. He loves you. He made you. He knows what's best for you, and he doesn't hide it from you. So what, in fact, according to the text, is God's best for you, according to the text? His will, his beautiful description of how you were made by God to thrive as a human being. So look again at verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now that's a big fancy word that comes from the Greek holy that essentially means God's will for you is that you would be set apart enjoying a relationship with God patterned after the most beautiful person in the universe Jesus God wants you to reflect the moral glory of of Jesus. He's more committed to your beauty as a person than you ever could be. God is saying, I want you to be like me. (laughs) What could possibly be better? Go ahead, improve on who God is in his character. We couldn't possibly. So do you see the two presuppositions behind this way of thinking? 
Number one, it must be true that pleasing God satisfies your soul like nothing else. I know, I don't, I know we don't always believe that, but it is true. Pleasing God is more satisfying than any other way to live. The second presupposition is that God is most glorified in unseen heaven when we on earth reflect the glory of his moral character. That's God's passion, to see reflected on earth in us his own glory. What could be better? And so walking... In God's ways, beloved, among other things, is experiencing God's pleasures as he's designed them. God's the God of every pleasure. He takes delight giving you things that make your life delightful. Taste, smell, senses, sensuality. Every nerve ending is strategically and intimately placed in your body for pleasure by a designer God. So, beloved, everything we enjoy as human beings comes from God. He's the Lord of all human pleasure. So I have two verses for you in the outline. Psalm 104 says, When you open your hand, we're filled with good things. They come from God. And then Psalm 145, 16, which is a meditation on the goodness of God. David says, You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Every human desire that's pleasurable has come from the hand of God. And what does that imply? If it comes from God's hand, we receive it from his hand with awe, with gratitude, with humility, and a commitment to use that pleasure the way God has designed it and experience its maximum benefit, including sex. It's his idea. God invented sex. He's the God of sexual pleasure. Can we say that? Absolutely. This is a good gift given for a context. Heterosexual marriage. It's like fire. Used in the right context, a wood stove heats the house. You can even cook on it. If you have a little window in your wood stove, aesthetically pleasing. In the wrong context, take that same fire, put it in the middle of the living room, it destroys the house. A really good gift given by God for a specific context. Now, you may be thinking, I don't believe in God, but I believe in sexual pleasure. Okay? Listen to God's appeal to you in the appeal of sexual pleasure. What might God be saying? According to the Bible, God is saying this. Don't miss the sign Sex isn't an end in itself. God wants you to know that the intimacy you crave, the sexual pleasure that you crave, is a picture of the pleasure of intimacy with God himself. It's a picture. Sexual pleasure is not a place you stop. It is a sign that says, this way to paradise. The pleasure God has designed in sexual pleasure points to something greater, the unspeakable wonder and pleasure of being in the presence of God. 
Psalm 16, verse 11. I think Michael alluded to it in his prayer. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forever. There is something better than the wonderful pleasure of sexual intimacy. Let me tease out some implications of this. And this is going to be the longest point in the sermon. Number one, sex is created, not merely discovered. So as you think about human sexuality, does it look like the product of the chance co-location of atoms? Or does it look like it's something designed purposely by a creator? The point is, if you didn't invent this, would it be good to check the owner's manual so that you're receiving it the way it was designed to work? Second implication, God's standards safeguard human dignity. God sets forth the way this gift is used. These standards are unchangeable and they transcend all time and situations. Let me suppose again that you don't believe in God. I want to specifically invite you into the dialogue. There are essentially two worldviews. Purposeful creation or chaos, molecules in motion. I believe in the worldview that says everything we see around us, including sexual pleasure, is from the hand of a gracious designer, a purposeful God. If your worldview is all there is is molecules in motion, then really anything goes when it comes to sex because if there's no lawgiver, all things are permissible. In fact, if you don't believe in God and you begin to put restrictions on the way things are done, aren't you being dogmatic and narrow-minded? What does it matter what one bob of chemicals does to another bob of chemicals? Now you say, wait, Mike, that's not fair. I would, even though I don't believe in God, I'd be the first person to say child abuse is wrong, rape is wrong, incest is wrong, bestiality is wrong, polygamy is wrong. And I would say, I wholeheartedly agree with you, but you're imposing your view on me. <laughs> what gives you the right to make those laws if all there are is molecules in motion? You don't have value of human beings when all you have is molecules. As soon as you introduce an ought or a should, you've introduced a lawgiver. What makes your laws any better than God's? The point is, God gives us structures and restrictions for our good to safeguard sex when it comes to value of the, and the safety of the human individual. Third assumption. You can never hurt yourself or others using this gift God's way. The Bible lays out a view of reality, a view of morality, that when you live in conformity with it, you can't hurt your soul. And you won't hurt others. One of the books of the Bible that teases that out is the book of Proverbs. Here's the way there's a socio-religious order that God has 
hardwired into reality. And when you move in concert with it, you experience happiness, blessedness, joy, productivity as a human being. When you seek to break it, you not only hurt yourself, you hurt other people. Case study from the book of Proverbs chapter 6 raises the question, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Answer, no. Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Answer, no. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Verse 32, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself and other things. He will get wounds and dishonor. His disgrace will not be wiped away. Jealousy makes a man furious. He will not spare when he takes revenge. That's the offended husband. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse you, though you multiply gifts. God safeguards human relationships, human welfare, through a context for sexual expression. Promise of God, you will never get an STD Practicing sex God's way. Never, ever. Fourth assumption here, I'm teasing out. To reject God's ethics is to reject Him. Verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gave His Holy Spirit to you. The word disregard is quite strong in the original, it means to refuse, to spurn, and to despise. We read all the time in the papers of, a, of an athlete who's part of an organization and he transgresses the organizational rules. He's using drugs or doing whatever. What happens to him? You're out because you rejected the organization by doing it your own way. Beloved, the call to sanctification is to become like Jesus. There's no greater privilege or joy and to reject that call is to reject whom? Jesus. Is that a serious thing? According to Paul, it is. He says, the Lord is the avenger in these things. Somehow in God's economy, blatant disregard of the way he wants you to control your body brings a kind of judgment. Exactly what? I don't know, but we should take the warning seriously. Second point, the next, next two are a lot shorter than these. Paul is addressing a cultural situation not much different than our own. He wants to detail part of the rationality of biblical sexual ethics and make it desirable. Second thing he says, sexuality is practiced in other-centeredness. So it raises the question, what keeps sexual expression from being purely selfish, manipulative, even abusive of another person. What keeps it from that? The biblical ethic does. <laughs> it's verse 4. Each one of you should know how to control his own body. Just sidebar, commentators disagree about whether or not the, the word refers to his wife or his body. I'm going with the ESV that he's talking about our bodies, but there's disagreement among commentators. Just want you to know. His own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no transgression wrong his brother. <laughs> Who's touching the lights? <laughs> Interesting. 
Lord, shine light on this text for us. So Paul contrasts two ways of living. Ruled by your passions, ruled by the Spirit. Gratifying yourself, gratifying another. Seeking your own will, seeking God's will. Using another person or blessing them. Wronging them or honoring them. What stands behind this notion of sexual self-control for another person's benefit? At least two things. Number one, when God gives us his law for our good and our neighbor's good, he says in the seventh commandment, you don't commit adultery. You don't hurt another person with your own unbridled sexual exploits. In the Eighth Commandment, God says, don't steal what belongs to another person. You don't take another person's sex, sexuality with their spouse. And the Tenth Commandment, he says, you don't covet what isn't yours. But maybe even more importantly, go back in time to the original marriage covenant in Genesis 2. That's why I had Joe read it earlier. God makes everything perfect. He makes Adam, and there's something not right about this situation. It is not good for the man to be alone. The original marriage covenant is a covenant of companionship. God created Eve to solve the problem of, excuse me, yes, to created Eve to solve the problem of Adam's loneliness. This is a covenant of companionship, and the text says they were naked and unashamed. What's significant about that? They have nothing to hide from each other in their pure moral state. No sin, no shame. They came under the unbridled moral gaze of the other person and they didn't need to compensate for it, feel insecure, or run for cover. And the point is their physical relationship was to reflect the glory of their emotional and spiritual oneness. Nothing came between their persons that gets reflected later in the evening in the marriage bed. Sex was designed for companionship, an expression of what is happening in the heart level because where the heart goes, the body wants to follow. That's the way God made it. In our pristine state, Adam and Eve, we're open, we're naked, we're joined, we're one person. That is reflected in their physical union. And that's why Paul reasons that when you have sex with a prostitute, you've created a monstrosity. You've got the physical oneness without the other, without the spiritual, the emotional oneness. 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Do not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. The joining of two bodies sexually without the joining of two hearts emotionally, spiritually, in a covenant of commitment is completely against God's wonderful design. I have a counselor friend who calls this kind of sexual exploit intensity, the pleasure might be there, without intimacy, the commitment to be one heart and soul in life. So Paul is not saying here that marriage becomes legalized lust. Far from that, he is calling for self-control in the body, in holiness and honor. 
Holiness and honor. What's he really saying? Isn't he saying that the ultimate ground of sexual biblical ethics is be who you are? In union with Christ, you're a glorified, being glorified child of God. There's an honor that's over you, a glory that's over you, because you belong to Christ. Let that be reflected, expressed in the way you do sexuality. Last point. What is attractive, what's compelling, what's good about biblical sexual ethics? It reveals, thirdly, the glory of God's grace. I would say one of the major presuppositions driving our you know, free sexual expression in this day. I mean, think back to the songs I listened to in the 70s. Hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? Hello, I love you, let me jump in your game. Or as Crosby, Stills, and Nash, love the one you're with. That's, that's what we got in the sexual revolution of the 60s. Is there an assumption underneath that? I think so, and that assumption is this. I can do whatever I want with my body. So I would like to challenge that presupposition. Is it really your body? Did you design the human body, just out of curiosity? Did it have anything to do with its design? Anybody in the room? Let those listening in radio land say, no one in this room believes they designed the human body. Did anyone in the room will their physical existence? I mean, did you decide you would be born? Did anyone know? No one in the room believes they willed their physical existence. Well, if God created your body and your existence, you owe your existence to God, your body actually belongs to God. Melanie is having our children memorize parts of Psalm 139. One of those parts says this, You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Your body is the work of God and it belongs to God. The, the earth is the Lord's and everything it contains. You belong to God. He made you. And interestingly, the Bible takes that and, and carries it to another dimension when it comes to marriage. So the, I have for you the verse from 1 Corinthians 7, which is going to say that if you're married, your body belongs to your spouse. What? Paul writes, because of the temptation to sexual immorality wasn't any different in Corinth, probably worse than in Thessalonica, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Don't deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan might not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sometimes fast from this pleasure, but always sensitive to the needs of the other. Isn't it interesting that there's this tension here? Make your needs known to your spouse. You're aware of those, but your body belongs to your spouse and their body belongs to you. So we start, we, now we have, we have three levels of ownership. God, uh, your body belongs to God. When you get married, your body belongs to your spouse. 
And in salvation, your body belongs to Jesus. Look at the last verse that I have for you on the outline. 1 Corinthians 6.20 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. First, your body belongs to God through creation. If you're married through the marriage covenant, your body belongs to your spouse. And in salvation, your body belongs to Jesus. You're not your own. (laughs) What is the price through which this body was bought? The cross. The only man in human history who conducted his body in honor and purity, Jesus Christ, said to his father on Good Friday, avenge the sins of my people against me. All the avenging and condemnation and judgment, not only of our sexual sin, but all other sin, Jesus said, I will bear in my body to cleanse purify and save and deliver the bodies of everyone who believes in me. That was the price, beloved. And he sends his Holy Spirit to you as confirmation, I belong to Jesus. He sends a spirit by whom we are sanctified in our quest for sexual purity. Beloved, if you're thinking, I've committed sexual sin that God couldn't forgive, then you didn't hear what I just said. His blood makes the phallus clean. He cleanses us of all sin for all time. There is redemption after messing up sexually, thank God. And now that you have his body, you can glorify him. Glorify him in your body. Because Jesus, Jesus bought it with his own blood. Jesus suffered died incredible agony to give your body redemption. You confessed it earlier from the Heidelberg that I belong body and soul not to myself but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Think on that. And he will loosen the grip of the temptation of this God-given pleasure. I'll just conclude from uh, one of my favorite. We actually sing, the sands of time are sinking here. And one of the verses in the sands of time are sinking goes like this. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us in Jesus a sacrifice for our sins, giving us cleansing, giving us righteousness in your sight the moment we trust him. Thank you for the hope and confidence of certainty of complete cleansing from the ways we have abused this gift. Thank you by the power of the Spirit indwelling in us as we his temples. He will bring to pass in us 
the faithful expression of what glorifies Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.